This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. Daphna, happy, happy New Year New to you. Happy New Year. Thank you. I know you had a long week on service. Yeah, it's okay. I. Uh, <laughs> it's just. Um, it's it's weird to work in the in the New Year. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's always uh, it's always bizarre. Everybody else you know is off, and um, yeah, yeah. It, it's like, you know it is a weird time. In the hospital, right? Because there are a few parties. There's like a skeleton crew, and you're right. Yeah. It, everybody else is off, but yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, your friends are texting. It can you be tough from- times. I think. I think it can be yeah. tough for people. But then I was talking to the other day to Joshri Nair, who we had on the podcast before from Buffalo, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I stopped complaining because then I was like, yeah. She's like, I do have, there's snow I do as far as the eye can see. I was like, okay, Joshri, I'm, I'm uh, feeling lucky the, here in Florida. And the memes that, you know, Florida's winter has ended are true. You know, we put the, mm-hmm. the AC back on today and yeah, know, that's it. went swimming. That's it. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> it did it did snow for a hot minute. Uh, I saw a video. <laughs> I saw a video of like people attending the football game at the, at the Hard Rock Stadium. And they were like, mm-hmm. there's like barely some snow falling. Um, but anyway, happy new year, everybody. We hope that, um, you guys will get a lot of things done this year. Um, mm-hmm. this is where, we're your productivity buddies, basically. I mean, that's overall, we're hoping that all together we can sort of amp each other up and we're like, all right, yeah. so we're going to get some, going to get some stuff done this year. Uh, we have already an amazing lineup of guests, uh, for, for this upcoming year. Mm-hmm. We have a few series of special episodes. We're going to be attending a bunch of conferences. Um, it's going to be an exciting year for us. And uh, for sure. we are hoping to make this an exciting year for you as well. So, um, Daphna, what should we talk about? We have some updates, first of all. So, obviously, um, if you haven't caught up our last episode, we mm-hmm. uh, went over a lot of the things that we're working on, some of the, the updates. But the thing that probably matters to you most is that we do have our end-of-year giveaway. Mm-hmm. It's a fully decked out iPad Pro, which I actually received uh, the other day. So it's at home, and it has like the 12.9-inch, it's it's the bigger iPad. It has like the brand I can't. Processor. I can't tell you guys how excited Ben was just ordering it. So... I, okay. Can I, I tell you the story of why? Really enjoys it. Really. Can enjoys I tell you the story it. of why I was uh, why I'm excited? Because I went on the Apple website and I basically uh-huh. picked the the top of the line item, right? Sure. Top of the line item with the pencil. Didn't with even the think keyboard. about it. Yeah. I didn't think about it, right? 
thanks <laughs> to the generous sponsorship mm -hmm. of the people sponsoring the podcast. In this case, the, the giveaway sponsored by Wreck-It Me Johnson. So it was great. But I remember as a kid, um, as a kid, well, I guess, when I arrived in college, I was like, mm -hmm. I had no money, right? My parents, like the salaries in France and in the US are different. So anyway, my roommate ordered a laptop and mm -hmm. he just like basically went online, took a fully decked out laptop and just bought it. And I was like, holy shit. Like I would <laughs> never be allowed to do that. And I was yeah. like, man, one day I wish, I wish I can, I can have enough means to just do that and do this for my kid as well. So for me to be able to do this for our, one of our audience member, it's kind of cool. Like I just go like, yep, fully decked out. You still Pro. haven't, you still haven't done it for yourself, right? No, no, I right. have not done it for myself. <laughs> I know. I believe it. Uh, you're you're no. very you're very frugal. Yeah, I mean it's always the same because at the end of the day you're like I could be doing some good things with that Something money. Else. Do I really yeah. need it? Um, so yeah, so it's uh, the 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 gratification of being generous to others is so much yeah. more fun than sure. the short adrenaline rush of getting like a brand new computer. It's just like yeah. When you do something well, you nice know, my, my love language is gifts. So I yeah. love when we have a giveaway. <laughs> so anyway, so it's here. If you want to enter the, if you want to enter the giveaway, you read, there's like a bunch of tweets running around and you can just retweet that mm -hmm. and tag a friend. Make sure you follow us as well. There's a bunch of people who are scamming giveaways, by the way. I don't know if you saw that on Twitter. Mm, it's like a bunch of people no. who are hunting out giveaways. And I can see that like there are people who uh, are not following us, who have nothing to do with neonatology and suddenly just are retweeting oh. our stuff just to get into the giveaway. Um, mm. So make sure you follow us. <clears throat> and um, if you want to get a double entry, you can send us a little email about how the podcast has sort of impacted your day-to-day -day practice. This is something that uh, we just we just love these stories and we thought mm -hmm. we want to hear more from the audience and what a better what better way to do this than incentivizing you to do it through this giveaway. And then if you have already registered for the Delphi conference, then you have a triple entry. So it's like you've, you have three tickets mm -hmm. in the bowl uh, to win the, the giveaway. And uh, we have, I think you have another week to, to do that. So that's uh, really exciting. Um, the last thing we want to talk about before we welcome on our guest is uh, just letting you know that we are switching things up with the neonatology review mm -hmm. podcast um, the boards are approaching. They're about a year. I mean, if you are, if you are <laughs> scheduled to take the boards, you are feeling exactly the same, which is it's coming, even though it's like yeah. 18 months, but it's coming. And so it's what coming. we're hoping to do is that we're hoping that this year we can go through the neonatology review books, uh, together and uh, review some of that material. Obviously, it will be probably too difficult to do to review all the books, but we're going to try to review the most high-yield material based on the content specification, which, by the way, has changed if you don't know about that already. And um, and so we are going to get our first episode to be uh, airing this month. There'll be uh, one-week episode, one week long episodes uh, once a month, uh, until the end of the year. And we have some great news from that front. Thanks to the, the folks at Kiesi. Um We uh, are most, it's not finalized yet, but hopefully we can start waiving the subscription costs and yeah. uh, make this uh, accessible to everyone. Super excited about that. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I think especially for 
people who are getting ready for the boards, for new fellows. I think this is going to be, I think, super high yield. It's going to be like low pressure, right? Because we're starting so early, Mm -hmm. hoping to get all the way through really the core material January through December and then pick up like we did when we started the board review podcast to do really um, question, question, questions for the last three months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. I'm kind of excited, especially since I don't have to take them. It's exciting. I'm excited to to prepare for the boards again. It's always more fun. Um, I I often do that after exams, you know, you, you read, uh, you open the book and you're like, Oh, that's actually quite interesting. It's like, why was I not that curious? And yeah, why didn't, it was time why to, didn't I, why didn't I why know did I have that this, when I took the this board? aversion, <laughs> this aversion to the book during the study time. Anyway, we have to get moving mm-hmm. and um, we're very excited to have a marquee guest for this first episode of the year. Um, we wanted, I mean, uh, we have the pleasure of having with us today Dr. Susan Hintz, uh, and she is um, she is uh, an amazing, amazing researcher, neonatologist, and uh, we think you're really going to enjoy the discussion um, that we've had with with Susan. And for those of you who don't know who she is, you must have seen that name on papers because she has re- written landmark papers. But uh, I'm just going to go through her her bio uh, before we introduce her. Uh, Susan Hintz is the Robert L. Hess Family Endowed Professor, Senior Associate Chief of Neonatal and Developmental Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine, and the Director of the Fetal and Pregnancy Health Program at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford. Dr. Hins is a neonatologist and perinatal epidemiologist whose investigative work focuses on understanding and improving morbidities and neurodevelopmental outcome for outcomes for extremely premature and high-risk infants, including the use of neuroimaging as a biomarker. Her work as the lead principal investigator for neurodevelopmental outcomes with the Eunice Kennedy Shriver NICHD Neonatal Research Network encompasses follow-up of high-risk infants at toddler age through school age. She is Principal Investigator and Medical Director for the Statewide California Perinatal Quality Care Collaborative, the CPQCC, High-Risk Infant Follow-Up Program, a statewide partnership with California Children's Services, integrating a continuum of care framework for quality improvement from NICU to discharge through early childhood. Dr. Hins also led the creation of the Fetal and Pregnancy Health Program at Stanford and has been director of the program from its inception. The program has established an innovative, multidisciplinary, and highly integrated approach to comprehensive care for complex fetal patients, expectant mothers, and families. Um, Please, without further ado, join us in welcoming to the show, Dr. Susan Hintz. Dr. Susan Hintz, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us this morning. It's a great pleasure and an honor to be part of this podcast. Thank you. Well, <laughs> the honor is all ours. Mm-hmm. Um, you are a, uh, I guess it's, it's, it's appropriate to call you a Stanford neonatologist because you, you trained your entire career at Stanford. Um, and it's almost part of your identity, I guess, at this point, Wh- what was the, we, we, we like to ask that question to our guests. What was the thought behind pursuing a career in neonatology for you? Well, that, uh, that is a long, <laughs> We have time. We've got the time. Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, I I really felt like I uh, I guess I would say that 
medicine was on my mind from the time I was sort of uh, young. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that would, that would be the direction I'd want to go, maybe even from seventh or eighth grade. Um, I thought that would, that would be, but I, I don't think that's rare. I think a lot of people sort of start thinking that way. Mm-hmm. I did think for, I mean, I thought really from the beginning, I wanted to be a pediatrician. I thought that made the most sense. And actually for a long time, I thought I would be a general pediatrician. But as I got further into medicine, and certainly even I was starting from my internship here, I realized that I really enjoyed much more. I enjoyed um, intensive care medicine in one way or another. So I really enjoyed neonatology, although I think many of us, our first uh, rotation is fraught with. Uh, stress and anxiety. I actually did, this is going back like into the prehistoric days. Um, I did what was then sort of the only, I guess it was the first time anything was sort of a sub-internship in neonatology when I was a medical student for a number of very bizarre reasons, like they were going to be down an intern and people knew that I really enjoyed that area when I was doing rotations in clinical, um, at my clinical rotations in medical school. So it was sort of like, would you do this and just act like an intern before there was really a sub-internship way back when? So I really enjoyed that a lot. So I think that influenced me greatly to think that probably neonatology would be my my way to go. But during residency, I did feel like maybe pediatric intensive care, maybe even hemonc. Um, because uh, that was getting increasingly intensive. And a lot of the children actually ended up for a short time anyway in intensive care. And I could see that would be a very important field to be in to, to really be able to give those kids the best care and collaboration with the, with the PICU teams. Mm-hmm. But, and then I, I was a chief resident and I was still, it, again, there was not a, there wasn't the same process now. Um, as there is in fellowship. So I was still even a little bit undecided when I was a chief resident, but, you know, the deal was sealed by the time I finished my chief residency. (laughs) But it's interesting what you're, what you're bringing up, right? Because it is the opportunity as a lower level trainee, right? Meaning you were not a fellow, you were not a senior resident to have the opportunity to take, to take on more responsibilities Mm -hmm. within the NICU in this case, um, that, give you this this push and i think we're so reluctant sometimes to uh push our trainees to take on more responsibilities because we want to make sure that it's not uh too difficult and we want to make sure they have a good experience but sometimes the opportunity to take on responsibilities is the thing that will eventually light the spark and uh and and be the determinant of your future career so that that to me is is very very nice to hear yeah well I'm not saying that the way that I did it is necessarily or the way we all were doing it back then was necessarily the right way either, because, you know, I, I think you both would agree that there's got to be some some balance. balance. I agree uh, with you. Absolutely. Ben. I think, you know, the things that made the greatest impression on me were uh, probably in the midst of really being dug in with, uh, you know, as a trainee, really being part of that team, like really feeling anyway, that I was Mm -hmm. substantively part of the team and that I was 
that was my patient and I was mm-hmm. taking care of that patient. So that really, that I agree with you that in all of the rotations that I can think of, those were the most clarifying moments to me yeah. uh, and the most uh, important to me. Yeah, this was yeah. what I meant. This is what I meant. This was what I meant um, in this question. I think I think it's uh, it's important to uh, to not have a blanket approach to uh, the responsibilities that trainees yeah. can take on in the next. Yeah, year. I I agree with that. I think we, like I said, we would all agree that um, you know the old days are not the way to go. It was uh, mm-hmm. you know brutalizing uh, in in some of the ways. In terms of what you're saying, Ben, is sort of like it was required to mm-hmm. be doing it yeah. that way Absolutely. but there is you know a middle ground for for those who are really i mean i think we've all probably had the experience of a trainee saying no really i i want to stay here i right. you know because this is my patient and i want to you know i want to see this through i want to be part of this discussion or i want to be you know even things like you know end of life uh mm-hmm. issues um, but it, but it's like not allowed in, mm-hmm. in some, in some institutions, I don't know about yours. Maybe you can tell me like, um, you know, the, the duty hour issues are very critically important in, I think most residencies. And, uh, um, yeah. and so that's, I think it's, I think it's challenging for, I, I think it's maybe more challenging for the trainees in some ways <laughs> than. I think yeah. I think to me the duty hour discussion has to be tied with the dilemma of uh, service versus education. Mm-hmm. So I think as a trainee, you're always trying to balance service and education. And so I think it's important for us to when we want to go. In my opinion, whenever I've asked or maybe suggested to a trainee to stay extra hours, it would have been a hundred percent for educational purposes, not for service. Meaning, hey we're going to have this discussion. I don't need you to do anything. There's no mm-hmm. notes to be written. There's no consultants. There's mm-hmm. no line to be placed. But if you want to just stay here and see the process, then I think you would learn from this and it wouldn't involve it wouldn't involve any tasks. And I think that to me is where um, I think you can be a bit more flexible with duty hours if you, and then the, the, sometimes some residents have told me I'm, I have to go and you say, sure, go. It's no problem. But offer the opportunity of a completely educational experience mm-hmm then that I think can allow you to um, can allow you to have these these discussions and these opportunities with your trainees and say, hey, if you're interested in staying, then this is this is gonna be kind of nice. Yeah, I think it's you know, I think it's hard and I I definitely do respect uh, the evolution of mm-hmm. training in that not everybody necessarily would uh, present it that way. So there may be a, a feeling yeah. I, I do totally understand why it needs to be, why, again, I'm sure that, that this could be a completely separate topic with people who are much more educated than I am on the educational process, for sure, um, especially for residents. Um, but I do understand why the protections are in place, mm-hmm. because not everybody would be taking the the view of um, uh, that that you just you know that you just mm-hmm. presented. So I I do understand why there have to be protections so that the trainees don't feel that they're kind of in a bind. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
because otherwise, otherwise we'll be on a slippery slope back That's to, right. you know, yeah. um, however many deadly hours <laughs> were being done every day. That's so, right. yeah. Well, and I think, um, aside from the duty hour discussion, um, I think training has evolved some in that I feel like where I learned the most were when I felt I had all of the responsibility for the patient, but I knew that my supervisor knew everything going on with the patient, right? So, um, you know, that uh, I would be asked about things that, uh, you know, if I didn't catch it on the first go or I knew educational opportunities would present themselves, but I still felt this burden, this weight of, of the, of the responsibilities. So I think there, it's a fine line. It's a tough line as an educator to, to yeah. tell. <laughs> uh, since, since we're philosophizing, <laughs> um, Susan, what would you have uh, become if you were not a physician? Mm. Oh, not a physician at all. At all. I'm, I'm yeah. <laughs> well, I, I could have gone different specialties, but uh, I think the answer might be more interesting if we went outside of medicine. Mm -hmm. Well, I um, probably would have been a musician. Mm. Uh -huh. That was... Uh, Yeah, music was very centrally important in my life for many, many, many years. Um, so, yeah, actually, I I think that's probably the direction I would have gone. I, uh, yeah. Well, well, thank you, thank you for for that answer. No, that's uh, cool. How does music play a role in your life still? Well, that's one thing I think I probably would have uh, changed uh, if I. If I had it to do over again, I would be much more intentional mm -hmm. about staying connected to, you know, performance. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was, uh, I was a bass player, uh, and a, a bass player, a classical bass player. Uh, so in orchestras, opera orchestras, etc. Uh, and so I was involved in many groups uh, prior to actually really prior to the clinical years of my, uh, of my medical school time. So uh, actually even through that time. So it really wasn't until like residency that my involvement in music sort of started to drop off. So, uh, and then I really, I, I really felt like, uh, you know, I, you know, I can't be, I can't commit to, you know, you know, two, two operas in a season or something like that, because I wouldn't be able to, you know, attend all of the, you know, be, be a part of all of the rehearsals, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm going to be, I'll be on this rotation, that rotation, et cetera. And sort of it dropped off, but, you know, I also play piano and do a few other things. So I wish I'd been more intentional, uh, intentional about keeping that as part of my life. Um, uh, but, you know, it's, you know, my, I, I'm still, physically able to do those things. And I'm not quite, you know, yet at a point in my life where I'm haggard or unable to do things. So I, uh, I could, you know, I could probably pick it up again, but, um, I will probably start with more personal music. Uh, yeah. I, I tried to teach myself a, a couple of, uh, a couple of things. I, I taught myself how to play auto harp, which is not a great, huge, uh, you know, You could take that out, by the way. Um, but, but anyway, yeah, I think I will start, you know, getting back into music maybe in a more personal way. But 
how music plays a part of my life now is I listen to music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's about it at the present. But isn't time. it interesting that a lot of, not a lot, I would say a significant part of the work you've accomplished in neonatology um, came through your work with the neonatal network and this massive conglomerate of, of institutions trying to collaborate with each other. Um, do you think that isn't that sort of working in part of a big orchestra? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's a very beautiful way to paint that. <laughs> yes, I do actually think um, that, but as I said earlier, you know, everything that I do, I, every, everything that I do, I feel everything that most of us do probably, but certainly everything I do is as part of a team. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's absolutely true in the NICHD neonatal research network. Uh, I, I cannot believe how, you know, how well everybody works together. There is such collaboration. I mean, even, you know, developing a new trial or a new project, it's not, you know, even though it, it may come from one person sort of starting the thought, but almost immediately, most people reach out to colleagues in other places to, uh, you know, to say, hey, can we work together on this? Can, can I bounce these ideas off of you? Um, and it's just, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great, you know, it's a great collaboration. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and it's been, you know, it's been really an amazing opportunity for me to participate in that and to, uh, as a very young neonatologist, uh, to be a part of that was so valuable and so impactful to me, mm -hmm. how people could work together and and how things could be built and and actually just the embrace of young people in the neonatal in the neonatal research network um, was inspiring because mm -hmm. you know I was welcomed in to that mm -hmm. uh, to that group of you know some really amazing big names and you know that 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 has had a that's had a great impact on my life yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i i was going to just ask then when did your interest in we're all very passionate about neurodevelopment on this platform i mean mm -hmm. um people may not know this but i i i spent my whole fellowship studying neurodevelopment daphna is uh continued uh, she's the, the the director of our neurodevelopmental program here. Um, so we're all very passionate about this. I'm wondering when did your interest in neurodevelopment peak, and and what was the reason for you pursuing that interest? Yeah, um, that's a great question. It probably goes back to my point about um, a career taking twists and turns. So mm. I actually started out uh, thinking that I was going to be lab based, mm. uh, and as an undergraduate, actually, I was working in. David Stevenson's lab in bilirubin metabolism. Yeah, you have plenty of basic science papers, <laughs> publications, right? Yeah, so <laughs> I really thought that's what I was going to do. And then as a fellow, uh, I thought, that, well, there, I was becoming obviously much more interested as you go through training. I think all of us would say we become much more interesting, interested in integrating how is the brain working in this, you know, in this whole uh, organism, you know, and what, what is, what's going on there. So uh, I had an opportunity to work with uh, uh, David Benaren, who has now 
several companies, but it was sort of on the prototype of uh, near-infrared spectroscopy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, it was really like me welding things together and then, you know, trying to get, again, groups of people together, including some pig studies that we did um, and also some clinical studies that we did with this sort of, again, prototype of near-infrared spectroscopy that was really not only sort of uh, the components we think of now, but it, there was an imaging component to uh, to this uh, concept. Uh, uh, but uh, but that was also a great opportunity to sort of uh, work in big teams and actually had the opportunity, like you said, uh, Ben, you know, when I look back and I think, wow, somebody gave me the opportunity, you know, mm-hmm. somebody gave me this uh, like blank page and said, well, yeah, I mean, you know, call these people and see if they could all come together. And, you know, and soon you're in a pig lab, you know, with. 20 people who are doing this work together, which is, you know, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from that, from that sort of, um, I don't know, technology-based research also led me to say, well, what's really the ultimate interest in this? It's not, it's not just, you know, what's the, you know, what's the blood flow? What is this image, et cetera? It's, you know, how does this relate to how that baby is going to be managed and also how that baby is going to do later on? So I sort of started integrating um, MRI as as part of kind of the research trajectory that um, I was interested in, again, with other groups and teams. And then eventually that really put me on the path to, you know, really ultimately I want to know what's going on with these children later. So I better learn how to do that. And I, I better start, you know, figuring that out. And also part of that was, you know, if I really want to do this kind of research, I need to learn how to do not only what is, what does neurodevelopmental outcome mean and, and and uh, integrate that, but also how do I put together a study? Uh, how do I do these analyses if I'm going to be working in, in big numbers? So that also led me, again, through the Neonatal Research Network. I, uh, I mean, it was a K mechanism at that time. It was called a, an MSCIDA a Mentored uh, Specialized Clinical Investigator Development Award um, to get a master's in epidemiology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and early in my in my um, in my faculty years, actually, so um, so th- things moved in that direction. I, I will say that. I'll, I'll say the other thing is that I had the amazing opportunity to meet and really be embraced by some amazing women, primarily uh, in neurodevelopmental outcomes. And again, I I cannot. I cannot emphasize to you how strongly an impact it made on me to have Betty Vore, who is a true, true friend of mine now. I mean, I, at, at the time, she just was embracing me as, let, you know, let's have a discussion about this. And she, of course, is a major feature in the Neonatal Research Network. Um, and how much I learned from her, as well as Maureen Hack, who's now passed away. Maureen was 
such an influence on me because she was so supportive of uh, some early projects that I really wanted to do in school age outcomes, um, and including extending the the uh, neurodevelopment neuro uh, neuroimaging and neurodevelopmental outcomes uh, cohort of the support trial that mm-hmm. um, from not not just two year outcomes to uh, to six to seven year outcomes, and she was so supportive and just. A, a wonderful, um, you know, mentor in that, and was part of the subcommittee of that um, of that study. And a uh, Sarush Segal is another uh, individual who was, and still is, just so supportive and such a great friend. Uh, and really, without uh, without those three women, I don't think that I would have been able to sort of do what I, do what I been able to participate in doing because they were just absolutely supportive, always available for me to bounce a question off of and taught me so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes meeting, I guess I'm uh, sorry to interrupt. I mm-hmm. think definitely sometimes meeting, you know, the right people and mm-hmm. like through uh, the benefits of connections mm-hmm. and, and they were also incredibly before the term sponsorship had ever been invented they were doing that for me this episode is so proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage including an extensive infamil portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants learn more at hcp.meadjohnson.com yeah. yeah I think you speak to the the importance of buoying people up right uh you know and it doesn't uh, it doesn't detract from our accomplishments if we help other people uh, succeed. And I wonder, in your opinion, you've had such um, landmark mentors who, who you know, are big names in neonatology and about what makes a good mentor. Mm-hmm. Wow. There's so much that could be said about that. Uh, I think a good mentor is... Um, available, but is not necessarily always driving the relationship. So mm-hmm. uh, I think sometimes there's a there's an interpretation that the mentor is the one who is setting the agenda always. But I felt in my best mentee relationships that I was asking the like I was I guess I was trying to drive as I look back, Maybe at the time I didn't see it that way, but I was really trying to trying to drive the the discussions mm-hmm. in the way that was best for me. Although that mentor was also being very honest about maybe some crazy ideas that I had, or <laughs> is this the right way to go or not? That mentor also needs to be quite honest. Um, with, with you, uh, supportive, but honest, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you have the benefit of mentors who've tried things a million times and they can say, you know, here are the five times I've tried to do that. And I'll tell you the ways that I did it. I'm not saying it's not because I'm, I'm all for it, but these ways didn't seem to work. Maybe it was reason a, B or C. Um, but, uh, I think the mentor is also sometimes, 
again, these definitions can get fluid, but I think a mentor is also a sponsor in many ways in terms mm. of connecting you and, um, you know, maybe putting you in the right position to uh, achieve the best that, that you can achieve. Um, most of my most successful relationships as a mentee developed into collaborations mm -hmm. and collegial relationships and friendships. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it's a two way street mentor relationships, you know, I love that. I love that. It's not, it's not uh, always easy to see it that way. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's being thought as a one way street where mm. I'll tell you how it's supposed to be. And right. I, I like um, this idea of, of it goes both ways. Sorry. Tom, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think it's true. I think some people have, I think there are different uh, interpretations of the mentor mentee relationship. I think, um, I think uh, there, I think there are many successful uh, examples of mentor mentee relationships. They probably all worked slightly different ways, but I definitely do think that it's a, you know, it's a two way street. <laughs> Um, I wanted to to shift a little bit, if if I may say so. Your career so far kind of chronicles like a paradigm shift in neonatology from mm -hmm. instead of the, you know, treatment focus, let's manage this uh, disease to saying, you know, what happens to these babies um, after we do all these things to them, for them, depending on what that might be. Um, and, you know, uh, was the end goal in the NICU enough to say, you know, it was met an end goal outside of the NICU. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really paradigm shifting, I think. And it is still um, sometimes hard to remind neonatologists about, like, it's not just what's happening here from the, the day to day. And then they go home and we say, bye, you, you know, you made it. Um, and getting people to remember how much of a life occurs past what we do in the NICU. And so I wonder what that was like being part of this kind of movement and saying, you know, this is something that's really important that we can't lose sight of. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, I think that's, I think that's true, Daphne. I think there's still, uh, even now, people who are not thinking about that uh, later endpoint. Uh, but I think you're right that it is much more uh, forward in neonatologist minds of, about what the outcome is going to be. What I think we need to think about now, uh, and, you know, great investigators like Annie Chanvier and, uh, and, and other, um, you know, investigators in psychology and psychiatry mm -hmm. as well, um, you know, for instance, at Stanford, Richard Shaw, we, I think, our, I think we as a, as a uh, specialty, need to really be thinking about what is what is the end point or are there multiple endpoints and does it really is it really reflected in a bailey score uh versus is it better that we look at an outcome uh from the perspective of uh, are these families uh you know whatever a family means uh you know successful um is is the quality of life, uh, however that is measured, uh, positive? Um, and 
So I, I think, you know, in that way, we are still and we should still be evolving. And it, it may be that one endpoint is appropriate for us to think about in a particular intervention and another endpoint is appropriate in another intervention. But I think I would also say that neonatology sometimes forgets to think backwards. Um, so that may be one reason why some people have asked me, like, well, you know, you seem to have these disparate areas of your career, you know, of your life, you know, your academic life, um, in that I, I direct our fetal center, again, a big group of individuals. And I also, uh, you know, do research in neurodevelopmental outcomes. And I also, you know, have, uh, I lead the statewide high-risk infant follow-up program for California. So that seems to be quite Many people don't see that as being connected, and uh, I certainly do. I think many others see that as being no. It's it's actually part of a continuum that needs to be seen, and actually reinforced as a continuum. Um, all of these things that are happening in fetal life uh, are absolutely critical for all of us in in the NICU to understand what is known, what is not known, what discussions have occurred with the family, where are they in that arc of understanding, or where are they uh, in terms of their preparation for what's to come. Uh, and then, you know, the NICU experience, there's really no way, I think, that any of us can prepare a family for the NICU experience. Uh, if you have a long NICU stay, uh, it is, it, it's, um, for many families, is completely life-changing. And then to sort of be sometimes shoved off a cliff, you know, and okay, now we're being, now you're being discharged, bye-bye. Um, that we, we really, I think that aspect, that, that transition uh, some some individuals have done some sites have done amazing work with that transition, and Betty Bohr is one of them. She has a great transition plus program um, in Rhode Island, um, and then there have been studies, as I'm sure you are aware, and, and studies still ongoing. There's a great study that's ongoing in Canada, CSENT, um, that I'm very interested to know what the results of that will be. Um, but those are all things that I think we need to evolve toward doing on a population level, which is why I guess I'm very excited that, um, uh, you know, we have the opportunity in California to, to maybe influence uh, that kind of trajectory. So especially with the connection between the NICU data sets and the high risk infant follow up. No, I, I, I'd love to hear more. I, I, um, um, I. I totally see the connection. I mean, that just makes sense to me. We know so many things that are happening prenatally to a pregnant person, to a family impacts uh, the NICU stay and affects long-term um, development. And so I'm wondering, you're, you obviously have had a lot of success in, in kind of integrating and in, in, uh, ameliorating these transitions of care. Um, what is your advice to organizations that are trying to have better um, transitions of care in, in either direction, from you know, fetal to neonatal or uh, from the NICU to, to home, um, since, since certainly you're an expert in both? Yeah, I'm not sure how much... 
I, I will maybe, I don't know about advice, but, but maybe things that um, might be areas of focus. Uh, so the early, you know, the fetal to neonatal, uh, I think Stanford and, and some other centers that have, you know, MFM, uh, maternal fetal medicine, that's really part of the same institution, uh, have, have some really great opportunities. So, um, but, but even, even in, in institutions where they're maybe not right there, maybe they're delivered next door, you know, there, there are all sorts of models. Uh, really, I would say that having a foundation of, um, of connection between neonatology and MFM. You may think that you're connected to MFM, but really if you don't have a routine, uh, and maybe it doesn't need to be a whole program, but I think sometimes having a program uh, allows for some solidification of infrastructure that uh, may be needed for both recognizing what is uh, coming down the pike and also being able to create uh, support structures that will allow the best kind of communication uh, as part of that. Um, so, you know, we are lucky that that literally in our institution, we've been right next door to uh, MFM for, you know, our entire history. And, mm-hmm. you know, before you were asking, like, what was, I guess, maybe keeping me at Stanford, but having that kind of integration, I don't know, for me was so important. And I just, I couldn't even imagine how I, how you could do your job without having those multiple daily conversations. And that was even before, you know, sort of building out this fetal center. Um, So really key components to that are, you know, consistent communication. There are always going to be some, uh, some some challenging conversations between MFM and neonatology just from the perspective of it's hard to get to the point where you're all talking about the same thing. You know, neonatology may be talking about the baby, MFM may be talking about the mother, but um, but you can come to you can come to the point where you are all talking about the entirety. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of smoothing transitions, if you have that kind of communication, I would say especially if you have some kind of programmatic infrastructure, you can build all, you can build all the components and bring all of the individuals into that program for, you know, specific families and specific babies. And uh, one major component for our fetal center at Stanford is that we have always said that social work and housing needs to be a central component for that. So, um, the the social workers in our fetal center program, for instance, are the same social workers that will be with that family through their entire NICU stay. So there really is, that is a, a real point of continuum. Um, so those kinds of transitions. And also now we're lucky that we are um, beginning to uh, do much more consistent screening for mental health issues for uh, mothers and fathers. And um, being able to build slowly uh, more of a uh, mental health professional infrastructure as part of the whole 
uh, children's hospital, which include uh, support from mothers as well. That we are, you know, we're lucky that our our institution agrees that that needs to be done, but it is very difficult and it's a long path to be able to build in those resources, uh, you know, at the level that they're needed. Uh, In terms of the other transitions from NICU to home, boy, that is a huge question, Daphna, because for children with special health care needs, you know, many, many sites now are, are lucky to have a complex care clinic that that is part of, of their institution. But as you know, and as many of us know, most of, you know, many, many of the children um, who are referred to our institution for NICU care or even prenatally uh, um, an expectant mother is referred to us, may not be from near us. They may be from very far away. Uh, They may be in our catchment area. They may be in our part of the state. They may not be. And so they may not have those same opportunities for that kind of level of coordination. So I think we really have to do better on a whole population-based level of coordinating care for, you know, long-term, truly long-term outcomes, because those kinds of uh, juggling of, uh, you know, a zillion appointments and uh, making sure that the services are in place that they need is a major stressor for families. And it's also a major challenge for, you know, getting care for for the children long-term. That was a long answer, but as I said, it's a, it's a big, big, big issue. And, I, you know, you kind of went to the heart of it, Daphna, like, how do you improve transitions? Oh, my gosh, it could be, it could be a multi-month seminar of mm-hmm. uh, discussions on how, how that could improve. But I think, I think institutions and neonatologists really need to recognize that as a major goal for mm-hmm. next goal for the future. Yeah, and especially considering all the investment that goes into these babies and these families from both an emotional standpoint or resource standpoint, it feels like it feels so, so wasteful to just then cut, cut the cord and just not provide uh, the framework necessary to make sure the transition happens just as well as the care that was received in the NICU. You, you mentioned something about neurodevelopmental outcomes and, and definitions. And, and that's something that I was looking forward to ask you about, because I think, um, do, do you think, I mean, you've, you've alluded to the fact that quality of life and, and the perception of how families uh, live their lives is what truly matters. Do you think that we are going to see a change in how we assess neurodevelopmental outcomes in the years to come? I mean, right now, the standard is really to do a Bailey at about 24 months. Um, I have many questions. I'm going to stop here for now. There's one question <laughs> at a time. But do you think that's going to change? Yeah. I, I think it is changing how we assess our developmental outcomes. I think it also kind of depends on what the question is. So, you know, let's say that the, you know, we're talking about a lot of things here today. We're talking about sort of a population-based uh, or a broader clinical approach to, uh, you know, comprehensive care for a child and a family And then we're also talking about research. And it may be appropriate that a research endpoint, if there is a specific intervention that is proposed to, you know, that that the theoretical infrastructure is that a cognitive outcome is going to improve. You know, this is going to be something that's going to uh, 
improve uh, you know, cognitive outcome, or maybe it's something that's going to protect you uh, against uh, or you know, protect you in terms of your motor outcome. It may make sense to do uh, a very detailed assessment. In fact, that may be the only way to uh, to evaluate that particular intervention appropriately. So doing, you know, I, I might argue that, you know, yeah, I mean, a Bailey at two years may or may not be the right endpoint. You may actually, I, I would actually propose that if you're doing a NICU interventional trial, you should build in later outcomes because we all know that there are lots of things that we can't measure very well at two years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so Bailey cognitive may not be the the be all and end all, you know, when executive function starts coming into play more and more, you know, we can't do a very good job of testing executive function in two years. So, and that's, that's an important point, a uh, part of, you know, how you are going to function on a cognitive academic level and, you know, later on. So, um, so that being said, I would say that sort of more on a clinical perspective, uh, for our understanding of how children and families are doing, I absolutely think that um, neurodevelopmental outcomes are going to be changing how we assess them. So, for instance, in California, and many there have been many publications on this on this point. Um, does it always have to be an in-person Bailey test? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I'm you know there's going to be a great intake of breath, you know, like oh my gosh, what's being mm-hmm. said. But I think everybody knows that, you know, it's not, again, this is like differentiating a research cohort from a, uh, from a more clinical cohort that uh, assessments by telehealth, as long as the appropriate instrument is used um, in home assessments, um, as long as, uh, you know, the appropriate approach is being uh, taken and integrating more, you know, family aspects of of outcome uh, makes enormous sense. Uh, and I think many of us have, have started to do that. Certainly during COVID, a lot of the programs were sort of pushed to, mm-hmm. uh, to do that. Uh, and you probably know Alicia Spittle has uh, really made amazing, great strides in terms of being able to even, you know, continue physical therapy by telehealth in a very structured a thoughtful way, um, but you know these are things that uh, probably dif- are again are differentiated from a particular study or trial endpoint compared to how can we provide uh, the the most insightful uh, and you know sort of maybe the 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 best information that will help us to support a family better may not be a Bailey score. It may be other questions about that family and about services that are being uh, gained. But, you know, having said that, there are, you know, instruments that can be deployed by telehealth that will help us to at least estimate uh, motor and uh, cognitive outcomes. And if a young researcher is listening to the episode and wants to develop the next great Tool, tool to assess uh, pre- former preterm infants, then there's your uh, there's your cue. I w- there there I are wanna... some great tools, but but there are more to, that I totally agree. There's a lot of running space in that uh, in that world. I, 
I wanted to ask you about a, what I perceive to be a very controversial topic. Um, not that I want to make this a controversy, but I wanted to get your take on the correction for prematurity issue, right? Because I think when we talk about neurodevelopment, a lot of times we do quote unquote correct, which means that we adjust the age of the infant for their prematurity. And, and sometimes, I mean, if you were not to correct babies would be perceived to be much more, I guess, behind than they should be. But on the other hand, we know that early steps programs implemented as early as possible have the best outcome. So um, how do we, should, can you tell us a little bit what your view is on the concept of correction for prematurity, uh, <laughs> whether it is from a patient care standpoint, from a research standpoint, from a reporting of neurodevelopmental data? Um, I'm just curious to hear. I'm just curious about your thoughts. You don't have to give us. You don't have to give us a definitive statement, but I'm just curious <laughs> about your take. Oh well, um, there have been, you know, differing approaches. Uh, currently, uh, in our, you probably know that uh, the Neonatal Research Network has um, is pursuing five year outcomes for the top trial and for hydrocortisone for BPD. Um, mm -hmm. you, you may know Sarah DeMauro from CHOP is uh, leading the hydrocortisone for BPD um, asp um, part of that okay. study. Yeah. And that is correcting for prematurity all the way to five to six years. Um, and again, that is in part based on studies that have come out from people like Lex Doyle and Neil Marlowe and, uh, you know, really suggesting that this, you know, if, if you kind of want to understand where they are, maybe you do need to, from a research perspective, um, correct out to that point. From, from a clinical perspective, um, I definitely see your point, Ben, of you know, what, what is sort of the appropriate thing to report when you're thinking about the services that that child is, is going to need. Um, so, you know, if you're entering school, you want to make sure that the IEP is appropriate for that child. And I think that's a different question. You know, if I think that the correction really comes to, from my perspective, um, you know, comes to two things. One is is assessing from a research perspective, and the other is how do we how do we describe that child in the context of their peers and what they what they may need to help achieve their best outcomes. Um, and so that's so it may have different applications. I again, you said I don't have to be definitive. Maybe no. I'm I'm not it's being definitive, but I but I I do think that they might be slightly different questions, you know? Right. Uh, I, this is a discussion that my former mentor, Dr. Charlie Bauer, and I had mm. on a daily basis, where depending on who you ask, mm. some people will want to correct, some others won't. So for example, uh, parents are the most ambivalent. They, they, they're happy to correct to, to have reasonable expectations, but they will not want to correct and start implementing services because they don't want to find themselves correcting at three years old and then finding out that there's any, um, any neurodevelopmental delay. 
if you ask um, working in the early steps clinic, it was very interesting. Researchers love to correct, and then the the therapists say, "No, just just start services now." Yeah, um, so yeah. it's it's always it's always been very interesting as, and it's and it's an issue of perception. It's how do we perceive? It's a bit like the Abgar score. It's the description of this of this child. Is this child needing help or not? And and it and I think it's a I think it's an, still I guess it's still an ongoing. Um, an ongoing discussion. So, um, yeah. Um, I have a question about major data sets also, since we're talking about, you know, research outcomes and we alluded to this a little bit in, in, you know, the, the COVID pandemic has been awful, awful, awful. And I think in, um, in working around some of the restrictions, we've found ways, you know, like to meet families where they are, like more telemedicine, thing like things like that. And we may be able to reach some of our highest risk um, populations that we weren't able to, to reach um, before, which I think is definitely a benefit, especially when we're talking about long-term follow-up and developmental um, follow-up after the NICU. But my question is related to those research outcomes, um, especially in the major data sets. And, and what is your advice to people who are doing this sort of research in um, accounting for some of our societal structures that certainly impact development? Um, you know, when you're looking at a specific therapy and the long-term outcomes, you know, how, how do we separate out um, how much is related to the therapy and how much is related to things that happen, you know, to children after they leave the NICU that's, that's potentially out of our control, quote unquote, as neonatologists, but not out of our control theoretically as a society. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot to unpack in that question because I think <laughs> in large, in large data sets, if you're thinking about it as data sets, but in let's say clinical populations and in research populations, there are such site differences mm. already. I mean, that's a major, um, you know, significant difference um, is one site versus another. I mean, this mm. is true for almost any outcome you can look at. Um, mm. So, you know, even if you put everything together, if you were to look at individual sites, there's quite a bit of difference. And I would argue that there will be quite a bit of difference between sites and in California, probably between regions. Um, it, since we're lucky to have, a, again, in high-risk infant follow-up, which is in collaboration with our California Children's Services, we are able to look at regions and even, to some extent, uh, counties. So there are probably going to be, as we think about our analyses, you know, to come, you know, being able to identify enough information that might be during COVID, et cetera, um, or versus uh, after COVID, for instance, if we ever get after COVID. Um, That's fair. We, um, there, will, there will almost certainly be regional and site differences, but in the same way, you know, you, you say like some, some uh, you know, services may not have been able to be offered. In some sites, I am very well aware that for mm -hmm. except for a very short period, services were doggedly offered, continued to be doggedly offered in person, whether that be home visits, whether that be, you know, having a different setup in the uh, institution, 
but doggedly offered, whereas others really shifted to, you know, telehealth. And the other point that, and something that we're looking at um, in California is this issue of telehealth. You know, I mean, it seems like it would be the promise for, you know, leveling disparities, but in reality, it may not be the promise mm-hmm. for leveling disparities because uh, what we have recognized both from, from uh, survey-based uh, questionnaires to the sites themselves and also from data that we are beginning to look at, there, there are disparities in launching mm-hmm. telehealth, in supporting telehealth at institutions. So initially, anyway, there were institutions that were launching telehealth for other clinics, but sort of high-risk infant follow-up was way down the pike, mm-hmm. you know, in some institutions. Um, and then there are some there are some groups that um, are, you know, have said honestly, my patient population is not able to access, access that kind of bandwidth that's required for a real telehealth appointment. So we have to find a way to continue to do in-person service. And some of these sites specifically decided they're not even going to try to launch that because they know from discussions with their patients that that's not going to work for them. So I think it's going to be, it's, it's going to take some more time, I think, to really realize what the impact of that is. But I completely agree with the concept that we need to be thinking of uh, many different tools that we can use, um, you know, going forward. Yeah. Yeah, and this is something that the workforce has realized, right, where they thought that um, remote work was going to be uh, an equalizer, but then they realized with the person that doesn't have a large apartment or a large living space or doesn't have a good computer and a fast connection is going to yeah. be lagging behind the person who's who has a nanny to take care of the kids or large office to work from and and yeah. all the tools, right? So it's not it's it's interesting how we're figure finding out um, where where there's limitations to uh, to this to these new interfaces. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I think you're right. I think um, you know, even the quote unquote working from home. I think the sh- the you know lockdown was uh, very enlightening as to you know going back to maybe even an early point that you guys made that the the responsibilities may fall unequally on some people for taking care of the entire family, you know, mm-hmm. so it's very hard to be at home taking care of homeschooling your two kids while you, you know, or, you know, you're more than two kids mm-hmm. while you're supposed to also be doing a full day's work. It, right. It's not a, you know, it's not a reasonable possibility. And again, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of um, mental health distress that has, mm-hmm. um, that has come from, from this, uh, from this period, you know. Um, my, my last question, because um, we're obviously running out, of, we've, we've <laughs> went over time already, but that's okay. Um, how do you, what is your advice for young physicians who are struggling with the counseling of families when it comes to neurodevelopmental outcomes in balancing the data that is being published and the, what, what Daphne and I like to call the N, N of one um, paradox where parents are like, I'm not running a 6,000 baby study. I have to beat, I have one child that needs to beat your outcomes. Um, and and the difficulty in in both presenting accurate data, but also not, I mean, it's not unreasonable that if you're, right, if you're just 
betting on one child because it's your son, your daughter, um, you say, maybe, maybe my child will beat your outcomes and then I should remain hopeful. How, how do you, what is your advice on how to cancel families when it comes to that specific issue? <laughs> that is also a very big question, Ben, because, it, you know, I, it, I, think I can't it start also, with these questions. These questions have to come at the end when everybody's yeah, relaxed. And <laughs> no, I, mean, I think it also, I think it also depends on exactly, you know, sort of what your, your thought process is when you're, you know, where, where you are in the counseling, because you can counsel quote unquote, in terms of sharing information. But, you know, if you're counseling to, uh, to be, uh, in partnership with the family about what the next steps are for their mm -hmm. child. I think it always comes to trying to understand where the family is as a first step, you know, what, you know, this is, this is a very complicated world you've been in, you know, whether this is prenatally or, um, or in the neonatal period, you know, and mm. you've heard many things, you've met many people, uh, what is it that you understand, not a test, what, what do you understand and sort of where are your goals? Because if the goal is, you know, I, you know, again, in the, in the fetal world, if the goal is I expect to have a child that has none of these problems that I've heard about, then you have a lot of work to do to really sit down and speak with the family to make sure that we, you know, maybe the goal is it, it is different. Maybe the goal is, you know, restated, but, um, you know, these are all families that, um, have gone from probably expecting, you know, a full-term child in their arms in mother-baby unit and going home to a completely different world. And so I think we need to always start with what with the family, whatever the family is. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe it's speaking with the mother is the family. Um, about what they understand and, and their goals before we kind of get into numbers. Because just, just talking about a litany of numbers is not going to be meaningful to that, to that family in most cases. In some cases, there are, you know, very detail-oriented families. But even in that case, I think it's still important to kind of get a, a sense of where they are, what they understand, and definitely you know, what are their hopes and their goals and also acknowledge that they are grieving. They are grieving the loss of what they expected to be a normal outcome uh, or a different outcome. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd love to sit in on one of your prenatal consults, a personal passion for, for me. But my last question as we're, uh, again, over time, um, is, uh, for our trainees who are listening, who are interested in the space, who say, okay, I can see a future in, in studying um, longer term outcomes. Um, what are things that, you know, are ripe for study that, you know, the holes we still have the gaps in study? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about some of them throughout this whole time that it's, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there is always there's always space for longer, longer term outcomes. And I would say that is a huge part of what we need to think of. Some people talk about two-year outcomes as long-term outcomes. That makes me shudder because that's not a long-term outcome. 
Um, but you know, what, what do these, you know, really continuing the process of looking at family, you know, how families are, are, um, coping, how they are succeeding, uh, and, uh, looking at maybe different, different endpoints for later, for later, and also implementing, I think a, another big opportunity that we talked about before is, is in thinking about and implementing different assessments, uh, and, and, you know, really maybe flipping the script a little bit on what is the, what are the outcomes that we care about even at two years? Mm-hmm. Um, and that will in depth, that will definitely, and already has led to taking paths maybe toward public health interventions and, and broader uh, advocacy and influences, which I think is always important for uh, physicians and uh, especially for physician scientists to partake in. That's, I think that's great. Um, we can, we can, we can end there. Daphna, thank you. Thank you for making the time. Dr. Susan, Susan Hens, thank you so much for thank making you. the time today to talk to us. This was phenomenal. I think there's a lot of highlights and, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I think we're gonna, we're gonna get great feedback from this episode. Mm-hmm. Not that we get any well, bad feedback from any episode, but, um, <laughs> this was particularly, uh, excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and, uh, we'll have resources linked to the, uh, episode page for anybody interested in your work and, and the things you're working on. So, uh, be sure to check that out. Well. Thank you. It was a real honor to be a part of this conversation. I'm really, I learned a lot from both of you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. The honor's ours. The honor's ours. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast, or through our website at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.